Hello, and thank you for tuning in to The Christian Skeptic. I'm your host, Sean Kerwin, and as always, it's my mission to take an honest look at our questions about Christianity through the lens of logic and reason. I'm not here to preach at you, just to start a conversation with you. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back, beautiful people, to another episode of The Christian Skeptic. If you're just joining me, I recommend you listen to the last episode before this one, because this one is a continuation of the discussion that we started having last time on free will. Last time we talked about the philosophy of free will, and this time I want to talk about the theology of free will. All right, let's do it. Let's inject some faith into the equation. Let's inject some theology into the equation. We've spent all of our time in this discussion talking about philosophy up to this point. But it is now time to turn to the Christianity part of this podcast and say, okay, what then? Because here is the ultimate conclusion. If we just left it at philosophy, if we just left it at the natural forces that be, they're right. You have no free will. Everything is predetermined. And if you choose to give up at hearing that, so maybe you're not a Christian, right, listening to this podcast, and maybe you are an atheist, or agnostic, or something else. And, and and I encourage you to do the research on your own, and you will discover that without actually injecting a god in the equation, who actually predetermines a lot, and we're going to get there, but without injecting a god in the equation, you have no free will. And so if upon hearing that you lose all hope and decide, well, life is meaningless, I'm just going to do nothing with the rest of my life, or even worse, I'm just going to end my life, which I pray and hope you don't do, because we're just getting to the, the faith part, the god part, you're not choosing to do that either. It was predetermined, right? That's the unfortunate truth. And I've listened to a lot of people say that. I've listened to a lot of philosophers and scientists and atheists say that. And then they say, but it's okay if we just pretend that, that that's not the case. If we just accept this as reality and then pretend we didn't accept this and we just go on living our lives not thinking about it, but come on, we are, we are skeptics here, right? Can I get an amen from my skeptics, even the non-Christian ones? <laughs> We're not going to go on living life without thinking. So let's hear the argument for free will now. And it's a difficult one to make. It really is, especially when we, need, when we inject the faith component into it, when we inject the morality into it. And when we hear stories of, uh, there was this story from, I'm going to butcher it because I don't actually fully remember it, but it was a hundred or two years ago where there was a pediatrician in Europe and he was a beloved pediatrician in the village, and he uh, administered care to hundreds and hundreds of kids over 40 or 50 years, and in his old age, he developed a brain tumor, which gave him pedophile tendencies and desires, and he began to act on those until his brain tumor was discovered. So I guess this actually wasn't 200 years ago. This is probably more recent. And they removed the tumor, and then his pedophile desires went away. And so... <laughs> Did he have free will in that moment, right? Or if you've ever been around an alcoholic who gets really mean when they drink, and the alcohol removes some of their decision-making, or maybe they're not mean, maybe they're too flirty, right, when they drink. Either way, we know that things that alter the chemical composition of the brain affect decision-making. So are our decisions just a product of chemicals? If you're doubting Christianity, is that a product of the chemicals in your brain? Is there any hope of you ever not doubting Christianity? Is there any hope of you ever actually having faith? Is there any hope of heaven? God in the Bible says, choose today who you're going to serve. What if you can't choose? 
Well, we got to go back to God's eternity, to the eternal now, and consider it with the temporal now. As I talked about last time, Eleanor Stump, a wonderful, wonderful theologian and gifted, gifted speaker, and I think she's like five foot tall. I don't know. Don't quote me on that, but she looks really, really tiny. And it's awesome to hear such a powerful voice and brain come out of such a tiny person. She gives us this idea of what's called a truth maker. And there's an eternal truth maker and a temporal truth maker. And in one of the talks she gives that's on YouTube, and you can look it up, she talks about, she's talking with this uh, gentleman who I believe is not a Christian, I'm not sure. But he's asking this question of, are we actually free if God can determine the future? And he can, and that's something that's clear out of the Bible, that God has determined the future. I mean, the Bible even says that. A man plans his path, but the Lord directs his steps, right? There is an undeniable deterministic nature about God and about how he is driving the future, even all the way to the end, and there's so much prophecy about the end of time and when it's going to happen and how it's going to happen and the details of, of what's going to happen and, and who's going to make what decision and what world leader is going to do this and God hardened Pharaoh's heart in Exodus. And, and there's so much that shows God is a predetermining God. He has predetermined how things are going to go. He's predetermined certain events in my life and your life. He's predetermined when you're going to die, when I'm going to die. God is a predetermining God, but that doesn't take away the fact we have free will, and that is because of the eternal and temporal truth makers. You see, she's talking to this man, and she gives this example, saying, if we make the statement that, I think his name is Robert, I don't know, I have to go back and watch the video. I'm terrible with names. But she makes the statement, Robert, tomorrow Robert will have broccoli for breakfast. And we don't know if that was true or not, but, but that's just... <laughs> That's just it. <laughs> we don't know if that will be true or not. If, if we were today on the day she made the statement and tomorrow Robert will eat broccoli for breakfast, we don't know whether that will be true or not. And let me actually further ex expand on that uh, first clause in the sentence. We do not know. Well, when do we not know? We do not know now. And what I did was I just qualified the truth maker of our temporal now in the sentence. You see, you could also make the statement, God does know now whether or not tomorrow Robert will have broccoli for breakfast. And that's because we're talking about two different nows. We're talking about a temporal now and an eternal now. You see, the eternal now is outside of time. So the eternal now encompasses the temporal past, the temporal now, and the temporal future. And we talked about this uh, a little bit in the episode on whether or not God changes. But let's actually think about it this time. Let's actually kind of dive into it and try to make some kind of sense of it. Though I don't think we'll actually make perfect sense of it because we've never lived in the eternal now. We don't actually know what time feels like when there's no time, when, when, when time isn't a concept that bounds us, because right now we're bound by time. We don't know anything else. It's not even like a fish knowing just what water's like and, and not what water's like. It's like a fish knowing what water's like and not knowing what eternity's like. There's nothing to compare it to. We don't know. And so for, for Robert, then, he does have the free will to make this choice. And at the same time, God can predestined and predetermine all of the factors to be available for Robert to make this choice or not. 
God can provide the broccoli. God can provide the table for Robert to sit at, the chair for Robert to sit on, the kitchen in which Robert can eat the broccoli, the pot in which Robert can steam the broccoli, the knife that he can spread the butter on it, sprinkle the salt and pepper. But Robert still has got to make the choice to eat broccoli or not. And the fact that Robert makes the choice, let's, let's for all intents and purposes say Robert makes the choice to eat broccoli tomorrow for breakfast. At the moment Robert is eating the broccoli, the truth maker then becomes real for Robert. But until then, it's not real. It's ethereal. It's conceptual. It's not based on anything in reality because reality doesn't know what tomorrow is for us in the temporal existence. But God in the eternal existence, it is true because he's intimate with that time because he's outside of time. And so God can predestine human history. God can predestine the events in your life and mine. But God, God cannot choose your response in those events. God can plead and God can give you every factor and every benefit at your disposable to make the proper response, but he can't choose your response. And that's where we get back to the conscious and subconscious free will idea of compatibilism. And this is where reductionalism loses some of its power as a philosophy because it's not philosophically inconsistent with reality to make the claim that not everything in reality is a mathematical equation. And if not everything in reality is a mathematical equation, the result of a mathematical equation, the derivation of a mathematical equation, or the integration of a mathematical equation, then it stands to reason that reductionalism can't explain everything, especially when we get to the emotional realm of things. For example, reductionalism can explain all of the chemical interactions in our brain that happen when we fall in and or out of love. Reductionalism can explain all of the chemical interactions in our brain that happen when we go to an art museum and we stand before a painting painted by someone in the Holocaust or we stand before a sculpture sculpted by someone in immense pain or any number of work of art. We can explain what happens in our brain chemically. We can't explain why. We know all the how. We know all about the how, but we don't know the why. And that makes sense, right? Maybe it's just me, but I feel like most skeptics really appreciate art. I don't know. Email me if I'm wrong about that. I love art. I'm not an artist at all. I'm an engineer. I'm an apologist. You asked me to be artistic, and it's just not going to happen. But at the same time, every time I'm in a new city, I always look up the art museums. I always look up like what museums I can go, and I can just walk around for hours and just appreciate the beautiful works that people have done throughout history. Reductionalism can't explain why they did that, why I appreciate it, just how. I mean, maybe to an extent, maybe I like the dopamine releases it gives me in my brain when I see something pretty, but it still can't tell you why I think that's pretty. So where am I going with this? Well, where I'm going with this is that maybe, bear with me on this concept, maybe we can reduce every synapse, every thought in our brain to a mathematical equation, and that's fine, and I think we can. I think we can reduce it to the chemical reactions, to the particles and to the atoms and how they act. But the combination of those, but the combination of those perhaps makes something that reductionism has overlooked. And perhaps there's something ontological within those. And of course, we've talked about ontology, right? That's the study of being. So there's something that makes us a being and gives our being 
weight and meaning and, in the words of C.S. Lewis, glory. And there's a combination then of synapses, of chemical reactions, of particles and atoms bouncing off each other like crazy inside our heads, then that make up a will. And I don't know, maybe I've read too much Frederick Nietzsche, but I think something we're overlooking in our day and age that maybe we stopped overlooking post the 1800s, which again was when my boy Nietzsche was alive and philosophizing, but something we stopped overlooking is will. Because let's not forget, that's what drove us to nihilism. That's what drove us to fatalism, to the very same fatalism that made us want to look into reductionism, the will to truth. And I think that's what drives us to skepticism. And yes, the will must be influenced by external factors. We've known this all along. And back to my, my home slice, my main home slice, Frederick Nietzsche. I've got his book Beyond Good and Evil sitting here on the desk right in front of me. And I'm thinking to his argument on the Ubermensch. I'm thinking to his argument on Christianity. <laughs> of course, why he thought it was stupid. Why he said it was a, and I quote, sign language of the emotions. And that's because as he writes, the essential thing, quote unquote, in heaven and in earth, is apparently, to repeat it once more, as Nietzsche loves to repeat himself, that there should be a long obedience in the same direction, there thereby results, and has always resulted in the long run, something which has made life worth living. For instance, virtue, art, music, dancing, reason, spirituality, anything, whatever, that is transfiguring, refined, foolish, or divine, the long bondage of the spirit, the distrustful constraint in the compatibility of ideas, the discipline which the thinker imposed on himself to think in accordance with the rules of a church or interpret everything that happened according to a Christian scheme and in every occurrence to rediscover and justify the Christian God. All this violence, arbitrariness, severity, dreadfulness, and unreasonableness has proved itself the disciplinary means whereby the European spirit has attained its strength its remorseless curiosity and subtle mobility granted also that much irrevocable strength and spirit had to be stifled, suffocated, and spoilt in the process. That for centuries, European thinkers only thought in order to prove something. Nowadays, on the contrary, we are suspicious of every thinker who, quote-unquote, wishes to prove something. That it was always settled beforehand what was to be the result of their strictest thinking, and it was perhaps the astrology of former times, or as it is still at the present day, the innocent Christian moral explanation of immediate personal events, quote-unquote, for the glory of God, or quote-unquote, for the good of the soul. This tyranny, this arbitrariness, this severe and magnificent stupidity has educated the spirit. Slavery, both in the coarser and the finer sense, is apparently an indispensable means even of spiritual education and discipline. One may look at every system of morals in this light. It is nature therein where teachers to hate the lazi, fair, the too great freedom that implants the need for limited horizons. For immediate duties, it teaches the narrowing of perspectives. And thus, in a certain sense, the stupidity is a condition of life and development. Thou must obey someone for a long time, he quotes. <laughs> Otherwise, thou wilt come to grief and lose all respect for thyself. This seems to me to be the moral imperative of nature, which is certainly neither categorical, as old Kant wish, nor does it address itself to the individual, but to nations, races, ages, and ranks, above all, however, to the animal. 
man is, and generally the animal mankind is. Okay, that was a really long quote, but I felt like I had to read it because in the 1800s, Nietzsche, who hated God, said that people only obey Christianity because they refuse free will, because they refuse to think freely for themselves, and that the actual freed will will reject God and evolve to become ubermensch, right? That was the whole philosophy he was laying out. And what's happened? Well, we've rejected God, and now we've rejected free will entirely. And so let's kind of wrap all this together and make some sense of the whole thing. To sum up, if you reject God, reductionistically and scientifically, if you want to believe in free will, you're fighting a losing battle. You shouldn't. You should believe that everything is predetermined, which is fine. And you can believe that way. Don't think you can do whatever you want with it, because predeterminism actually feels bound to morality, and especially bound to cultural morality, positive law over natural law, more than anything else. And so what you should actually seek to do is to lead the most moral life possible and to never judge anyone for anything, because anything you're judging them for, they're predetermined to actually do. And so if you judge people for standing on the side of a sidewalk, holding up signs saying, if you're gay, you're going to hell, or God hates prostitutes, or something really offensive in our day and age, and you're judging them for it, you're actually just a horrible person, and you should really stop doing that because they're predetermined to do it, and you're predetermined to drive by them and drive by their signs and read it. And so you're only causing yourself misery. You're only forcing yourself into your own self-imposed hell. And that's really silly, so stop it. On the other hand, there's a worse fate if you want to believe in God. Um, <laughs> the worse fate is that you have to believe in a God that predetermines everything, and we've wrestled with some of the stuff God predetermines before, and you got I've got episodes that you can turn back to on why does God allow evil and stuff like that. But you have to now accept a God that predetermines things, but then you have to accept the reality that you have free will within his predetermined structure and storyline of history. And that your free will isn't always you determining what happens to you, but simply you determining how you happen to the things around you. In other words, your free will then is determining your both conscious and subconscious reactions, thoughts, more than it is determining your actions. And, and that does line up with the Bible because you see, Jesus got on the scene and then he said, you've heard it was said of old, do not commit adultery, but I tell you whoever lusts after another woman in his heart has already committed adultery in his heart. And Jesus said, you've heard it say of old, do not commit murder, but I tell you, whoever hates his brother in his heart has already committed murder in his heart. And so then your free will isn't necessarily determining everything around you, right? But it's determining your thoughts. And then out of your thoughts come your actions. And your actions, yes, must sometimes be influenced by external circumstances. If you're driving along on a street and a car runs a stop sign in front of you, your actions hopefully will hit the brake. And, and that's not something that you necessarily chose to do but something rather that you reacted to do external factor you drink too much alcohol and you may become a very horrible person to be around and that's not necessarily something you chose to do although you could argue that consuming the alcohol in the first place was your choice and it was a very poor one if you decided to consume too much of it but your brain is now under the control of something else it's probably also why the bible says not to get drunk side note if you're enabling an alcoholic <laughs> and you're using a predetermined lie to do it According to the Bible, you're sinning just as equally as the person getting drunk with the alcohol. Just a side note. And likewise, people with their free will influence 
decisions that we make in an almost determined fashion and God allows it into our lives. So maybe you're the passenger in a car where someone decides to drive recklessly and their decision lands you in the hospital and now for the rest of your life you must make choices based off something that happened. And it will be then predetermined that you maybe have a medical condition that lasts. And we've been talking very philosophical and very theoretical and theological now, but let's get practical. Because as an ex-pastor, I can't just leave it at that. i got to talk about some kind of practical stuff. But here we go. The real kicker in all of this is that you won't actually know. It's actually impossible to tell what choices you've made that were solely influenced by nature and nurture, if that's even possible, and what choices you made completely autonomously on your own based on whatever's inside your head or your heart. And that is why... The Bible spends so much time talking about what you put into your head and heart. You see, I mentioned a little bit ago this idea between conscience and subconscious free will. And I never really explained it or dived too deeply into it. So let's do that here. You see, conscious free will is the free will choices you make consciously. You can kind of infer that by the name. But what, what that means is it's the free will choices you think about. And subconscious free will are the free will choices you don't think about. And they influence one another. Subconsciously, when you get up in the morning, you're thirsty. And you go and choose to drink water. Did you actually choose that or were you predetermined to do that? Well, a little bit of both, actually. You see, you're predetermined biologically to sleep and to not eat or drink while you sleep. And then you break this fasting, breakfast, right, of food and water. Um, and you're, you're predetermined to do that. But there's also a subconscious part of your brain that tells you, hey, dummy, I'm thirsty, go get some water. And then you make the decision to do it, whether you realize it or not. And then there's a conscience free will in which you choose, for example, to read a book or listen to a podcast. Well, the kicker here on a practical level is that your conscience free will influences your subconscious free will. So what, you, what book you choose to read you're going to read words and sentences and paragraphs, statements, and those are going to get planted in your subconscious. And in a future decision, those might come back to you subconsciously and influence a conscious decision. So you see, it's cyclical. They don't necessarily stand on their own. And from a really practical point of view, this is why it's good to consciously pursue knowledge. This is why it's good to consciously chase our doubt. This is why it's good Christian practice, as has been passed down through generations of clergymen, church fathers, Christian leaders, as well as is in the scripture. It's good Christian practice, as King David would say, to hide God's word in your heart. So if you were seeking to live a Christian life, which I know many of you are, it's good practice to memorize some scripture. In other words, is what I'm trying to say with a lot of words. Because what you consciously put into memory in the scripture will subconsciously influence your free will decisions. Because we cannot negate that we are conscious and subconscious beings. And so if you're consciously, as a Christian, choosing to spend 50% of your week or more watching TV, you're subconsciously going to make decisions based on whatever TV show or movie you're watching all the time. But if you're consciously, as a Christian, choosing to read the entire Bible, which not everyone that claims to be a Christian has even read the entire Bible, and then we wonder why we're doubting. It's like you haven't even actually read the book. Sorry, I'll get off my soapbox. But if you consciously choose that, it'll subconsciously influence future conscience decisions. Make sense? I hope this helped. 
I uh, think I spent a little more time on this, definitely spent a little more time editing this than I wanted to. But let me know what you think. This is definitely a huge discussion that we can drag on for hours and hours if we want to. But as always, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you've enjoyed the show. <laughs>